I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. And welcome back to on-air non-video version. Now, I hate that, like, now not doing video feels like a downgrade. I know. I mean, it's not, look, this is still the podcast that luckily a lot of you guys are writing in to tell us that you look forward to every week. But you won't get us in vision every week. You're going to have uh, only only our voices and our vision wherever possible. But what did you think about the feedback to us appearing for the first ever time together? I loved it. I loved that you guys who watched it loved it but it made me feel even more frustrated that we can't do video more often because i was like oh everyone likes it and one thing that immediately oscar was like what the hell is in vision a british expression because straight away you're like we're here in vision you even said it now but i don't think you ever hear anyone in like the u.s say that i'm not sure if it's a british expression but it's definitely a tv media expression which is i think why i why I use it. So for example, let's say there's breaking news, like really big breaking news, and the studio would be on the phone to me and they would say, uh, no, 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 we don't have time for you to, you know, set up your your cameras or to make it to the studio, even if the studio is 20 minutes away. They'd say, no, 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 we'll start off without you in vision. And then after that, we'll prep for you to be in vision with us. And so that, that would mean, you know, on camera, off camera, basically, one way or another, the news will be delivered whether you see me or not. And and that's, I guess, where that term comes from in the TV media world about InVision. But apologies to the American followers who maybe didn't catch that. <laughs> yes, sincere apologies to everyone. Um, It has been quite an interesting week in aviation, right? Have you been up to anything exciting aviation-wise this week? Well, shortly after I had seen you in Doha, I think actually it was the next morning, I was on a direct flight back to Airbus headquarters in Toulouse, which of course is in the south of France. One of our uh, listeners, Dan, had messaged me on Instagram replying to a story where I had put the location as Airbus Toulouse, south of France. And he put his name is Marco, and he said, make sure Dan sees that south of France part in the location. <laughs> knowing, <laughs> knowing how much it's going to wind you up for some bizarre reason, because, I don't know, Dan doesn't respect geography, and he thinks the south only relates to the the initial kind of front line of Cannes and nowhere else. I love that. I love that this is the thing, because to me, I mean, I think to anyone, when you say south of France there's a certain thing that comes to mind and it's not Airbus headquarters in Toulouse, but okay, you know, you you do you. Well, Airbus headquarters in Toulouse is my Disneyland. That is that is the, um, <laughs> what what's the trend right now? Well, I say right now, probably months ago. What was, I keep seeing this thing of, that's my Roman empire, you know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait, <laughs> you do know what that means, right? Isn't it how often you think of something so there was this meme that came out where people would walk around asking random men, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And it turned out that like a huge part of men are like, yeah, you know, once a week or several times a week every day. And it's like, what? Personally, I never think about the Roman Empire. But then I asked Oscar and he's like, yeah, I think about it at least several times a week. And I'm like, this is so random. So yeah, then other people are like, okay, what's my Roman Empire? Well, my ours is obviously aviation and i guess you're trying to say that your roman empire is airbus headquarters in toulouse because you hate hamburg for some reason 
No, I love Hamburg. Actually, I think Hamburg is charming. I think it's the Geneva of Germany. Don't put words in my mouth. Good morning. <laughs> good afternoon to our listeners in humble Hamburg. Love the jet that's in the uh, in the uh, in the river there. Love the downtown life. I think it's Germany's most beautiful city. And I think Gothenburg is just jealous because Gothenburg <laughs> could never. <laughs> so don't put words in my mouth. No, I think the reason why I was saying, well, now ditch this Roman Empire shit because I didn't know that's what it meant. But anyway, I was at, as you know, so yeah, flew on the direct from Doha to uh, Toulouse, which is a breeze, thankfully, because it's direct rather than having to force me through transit through Frankfurt or, oh, or God anywhere else. Forbid. <laughs> God forbid. The reason being there, aside from a few meetings, is that also it coincides with the fact that Airbus release their full year results for 2023, which in a nutshell, it doesn't need too much analysis. I mean, some pretty amazing financial results. Airbus are making a lot of money. It was an incredibly successful 2023 for them. And they always say that, you know, they say, well, despite a complex working environment, you know, despite the difficulties and so on and so on, they say that it was a good year. I think this is the first time, Dan, that they did use that phrase, complex working environment, because let's face it, it is. There is still instability everywhere and supply chain issues and so on. But they did say, you know, this was basically a wonderful year for us in terms of 2023 and the way in which they were able to sell like madmen and deliver and perform and uh, there were there were you know without crisis without scandal and so on and so on it was um it was great i mean that that net cash has exceeded 10 billion euros in the 2023 results and as a result because the the amount is so high they're going to be paying special dividends to shareholders it's uh it was a, it was a strong set of results and they now think that they're going to deliver about 800 aircraft to airline customers this year in 2024, which is 65 more than they delivered in 2023. I will put it on the record now in this episode of the podcast. I think that figure is modest. I think it's underestimated deliberately. I don't think that they're going to be delivering 800 commercial aircraft to customers this year. I think they're going to be delivering much more. And I think that they're maybe doing a little bit of expectation management there. But they that's also know crazy. that you know, almost three a day. If it's going to be more than eight hundred, that's almost three a day. Which, wow. Yeah, and and remember that for the average you know person that doesn't know about these kind of things, it takes a, a few months to manufacture and to assemble uh, an aircraft, and then of course it depends how quickly that then leaves the Airbus site, depending on the cabin and the furnishings and the interior processes and perhaps potential engine issues, which of course there are everywhere with both manufacturers and uh, so on and so on. But on the whole, it was a, a really positive outlook. What I did want to uh, to bring up is I had actually used the opportunity. I mean, I, I spoke to the CEO of Airbus, Guillaume Fauré, quite a lot off the record. So it was kind of, you know, some more casual private background chats and discussing the industry. Discussing the I also Roman spoke Empire, with him about, you know. We, like we just, what is his Roman Empire? <laughs> his Roman Empire is is his workplace. And uh, I understand why. I mean, I'd say also his Roman Empire is sustainability because understandably mm, the guy's obsessed. And I think that's, that's a sensible thing for the CEO of Europe's largest plane maker to, uh, which of course still are very much American as well. I mean, people forget that. It's funny, I was with Guillaume 
and there was a new New York Times reporter, first time to Airbus. She's based in Paris. And she was saying, like, uh, Guillaume, um, you know, what do you think about the safety culture? You know, what we're seeing all this crisis in America with Boeing. Do you think the safety culture is just better here in Europe? And that's why. And he, he didn't like the question. And it, and by the way, he's super forthcoming with answers now. He's really, really good in terms of articulating his response. And he said to her, y you know, at Airbus, we are also American, right? She was like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm just big. But he was like, you know, we we manufacture, assemble, and deliver aircraft <laughs> directly from the U.S. in Alabama, at the uh, at the site there, to U.S. customers, but also to customers that are that are not uh, in the U.S. And at least that's the plan. He said, you realize this, right? And she was like, yeah, yeah, but I'm just kind of focusing on, you know, that. And he said, please, please, we cannot pin Europe via America. We're not talking about oh, on the continent, that greater safety. In the US, that better safety. At Airbus, we are absolutely focused on quality over quantity. And this has always been my priority. I would rather deliver fewer aircraft every single year, but know they are 110% in terms of their quality and safety. He said, my priority is not to pump out as many aircraft out of this Airbus system as possible it is to pump out and safely, in a measured way, deliver only the highest of quality of commercial aircraft. And of course, that brings us to everything that's been happening with Boeing. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, the, we have so much news. We have Airbus news, we have Boeing news, but it is interesting that Boeing seems to be having a pretty good week. Not in terms of the 737 MAX, but in terms of the 787. We've had several new orders. Of course, Singapore Air Show is currently on. Do you want to, what are your theories on several airlines suddenly ordering the 787? I think that it, 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 I don't think we should read too much into it as part of a renaissance of the 787, <laughs> if you like. I think it's more to do with the airline customers that we're seeing just realizing that they either need modest growth or they need to replace older aircraft, which I think is what we're, we're seeing. So we're seeing, for example, Thai Airways this week adding and announcing that they they had ordered, but they had kept it private and hidden on the, on the balance sheet, but they had ordered 49 Boeing 787 Dreamliners this is something that has been announced this week at Singapore Air Show, and it's an order that it was actually logged in 2023. But do you remember that when they announce the orders, they don't have to disclose who the customer is? So that's um, that's that, it was Thai, basically yeah. the undisclosed 787 order. And I think that's that just comes into a place where we know that Thai for a while have been looking to replace their older jets. It's a really sad sight. I mean, wh when were you last in Bangkok? I I'm there all the time. I was there. Oh, I, okay. I can't remember quite when I was last there a couple months ago, but yeah, I mean, luckily the lineup of planes has reduced, but d especially during the pandemic, they have a new satellite concourse and the, what is it? The, the Southern part of that has like two taxiways and those from one end to the other were occupied by planes during the height, the a northern half, I guess, was also just full of A380s, 747s, A330s, 777s, all from Thai Airways lined up 
looking extremely rough. You know, the paint is yeah. faded, uh, things are peeling off, some don't have engines or tires, and they're in the middle of an active airport surrounding a brand new concourse. Yeah, it's it's a sad sight. I mean, the we, we also spoke, didn't we, on a previous podcast about how Thai were, were pissed off with Rolls-Royce for what they say were kind of overcharging them when it came to maintenance and engine issues and so on and so on and so it was rumored that Airbus might be losing a potential A350 expansion deal as a result of that. And here we have now the Boeing order confirmed. So Thai were not the only ones to top up their, their Boeing order. Royal Air Brunei, you've flown them, haven't you? I have. Royal Brunei Airlines. Yes, only on their A320 yeah. Neo, but I got to try them. It was interesting. Um, but they're a yeah. fascinating little carrier because... I'm amazed they have a quite a solid connecting business from London yeah. to Melbourne. And they're a dry airline yeah. from a very conservative country, but somehow they seem to do really well with that route. You're right. And every time I see that aircraft parked at Terminal 4 and I watch a bunch of Aussies kind of boarding it, I'm always like, well, that's kind of... <laughs> I mean, do they know about, do they know where they're, because, you know, for, let's face it, a lot of, I mean, you and I don't drink, but a, a lot of passengers really need to know that if they're on a long haul, they they're going, they they need to be able to drink alcohol and it's a dry airline. I mean, do, do, do you think that most passengers just don't know? And so then by the time they're boarded, it's too late. And then that message never filters out. And so <laughs> they still get, you know, the clientele that they uh, don't necessarily target. It, that is really interesting. I really have no idea who goes on Google Flights and goes, oh, okay, I would love to hear from people who actually book those tickets because yeah. at first seeing it, you know, Brunei doesn't have the best reputation, especially since the mid-2010s when they really implemented some much harsher laws than they had before. Um, and now, yeah, yeah I... <laughs> It is fascinating because then you have Saudia, which is currently, I think, one of the cheapest options on most routes they operate. So they're really competing on price. Another dry airline, mm. but at least they invest in a ton of non-alcoholic champagnes and wines that people can drink on board. But to me, it's just fascinating that you would choose your airline based on alcohol. But I know I'm a minority because many, many people do that. It's funny, isn't it? Because I was going to say, are they actually saying oh royal brunei let's do that or are they saying oh australia for 400 british pounds let's do that (laughs) it's it's just driven on price isn't it yeah but the question is is it i actually want to check now because there it's one thing in economy class but in business where royal brunei will be making their money are their Mm. fares that much lower so i'm checking your london to melbourne Let's just do a quick search. To While see you check, I'll, yeah. I'll note that they've been operating the 787-8 for the last 10 years. I mean, this is an aircraft that they that is the backbone of their fleet and of that long-haul route that Royal Brunei kind of tried to leverage their geographic location by placing themselves onto the Kangaroo route, which we've spoken about, or if you're American, Kangaroo route, which <laughs> or Australian, I guess. And uh, the... Uh, the the route that ultimately flies between Europe and Australia, this top-up order, very modest, just four, is for the larger 787-9. And they say that's just to expand the capacity on their long-haul services between, well, 
Brunei, and also Australia, the Middle East, and the UK, because that aircraft does a stop in Dubai, doesn't it? So it goes from London to Dubai to Brunei to Melbourne. (laughs) London to Dubai to Brunei. (laughs) Yeah, so so upon checking here, this is so fascinating because... Royal Air Brunei is far from the cheapest option on any dates and any tickets I can find, both from Melbourne to London and vice versa. You can fly, for example, China Eastern, which is undoubtedly better than Royal Air, than Royal Brunei, I think. I mean, Mm. I haven't flown Mm. Royal Brunei on this route, but I, I have flown China Eastern a bit. You have from London to Melbourne, also Chinese airlines are cheaper, Air India is cheaper, Thai Airways is just a yeah. little more. So maybe this is just a matter of Royal Air Bru- Royal Brunei is a state-owned airline from one of the richest countries in the world, and they can sort of, they somehow get away with filling their plane somewhat, and it doesn't really matter how profitable it is. Yeah, it's funny, and we don't know too much about the, their financing but that's often the case, as, as we as we know, with with state-owned carriers, they're not always obliged to be fully transparent with their financials. But yeah, tell us if you've flown Royal Brunei. Tell us what your experience was like, in t- especially if you've. Well, I know. I mean, Dan has flown them, but tell us if you have flown them long haul, or if you're flying them on the Kangaroo route, if you're using them instead of a Middle East carrier or Singapore Airlines to and from Australia, and uh, we'll use that as an opportunity to say hi to our loyal lovely australia listeners who are always uh, getting in touch yeah. to uh, give us the tea on what's happening down under it is very interesting with the singapore air show that although boeing has so far gotten the majority of orders they are yeah. not displaying a single commercial aircraft at the air show which is extremely rare they have some cabin mock-ups but no yeah. aircraft on display for whatever reason well we know the reason the reason is that they are currently in the middle of the latest chapter of what is an ongoing crisis. And I think they just thought they were not in a position to be able to be telling one of the most safety conscious regions of the world, Southeast Asia, uh, here we are debuting and showing off everything. Meanwhile, the house is, you know, (laughs) in absolute disarray back home in the in the US. I think it's, you know, the the Airbus exec, sorry, the Boeing executives have been absolutely clear in recognizing that you know, quoting, this is entirely our fault. You know, we, we need to get our house in order. Um, we have let our customers down. We have let the public down. They're no longer in denial. And so I think, how do you have that? And also say, take a seat in our 737 Max mock-up. And, you know, just imagine this is the uh, plugged door exit row. <laughs> and everything's fine, you know. <laughs> just like, please enjoy our extra legroom seats here in the plugged door exit row. But, I mean, in my opinion, they could at least put a 787, like put a Singapore Airlines 787-10. That's a great plane. It's based there. So why not make some sort of deal to display it? But I guess it's a sensitive time. I wonder if that conversation, if that conversation had ever come up, I wonder if Singapore Airlines would want to be actively promoting Mm. Boeing at this time either. I mean, Singapore Airlines famously turned down the invitation to be the airline in what was the one of the most viewed best-selling films of all time in that year crazy rich asians the uh extremely uh 
popular movie, Crazy Rich Asians had invited Singaporeans to be part of that key scene where the couple fly back to Singapore on a state-of-the-art, unbelievable A380 with a bar and double beds. And during the filming phase, Singapore Airlines, not knowing exactly what this movie was going to be like, maybe even put off by the title Crazy Rich Asians, Singapore Airlines said no. And then everyone, when this great movie came out, which was, you know, only painted Singapore in an amazing light, I think Singapore were a bit, oh, we, everyone was saying, Singapore, you could have been, you could have had those amazing scenes. It was a chance to show off these great cabins and yeah, they were too cautious. And Singapore, I think, I guess that's cultural. Yeah, culturally, Singapore yeah, Airlines are extremely careful with everything, I feel. They're yeah. so conservative and so conscious of their brand. They don't want any weird ambassadors or, or things going on. It's And it works because they're, after all these years, they're pretty much the most respected legacy brand in the world, yeah. I would say. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, especially in terms of an, an airline brand. They are yeah, that's they really are another part of being at Airbus in uh, Toulouse. I I had a look around a new part of the delivery center, which is a basically a new luxury lounge for airline customers when they go to pick up a an aircraft. Now, they don't just have to sign the deal and wait for the bank transfer confirmations come ahead. They can order via a dedicated Airbus concierge uh, a massage, pedicure, manicure, what? haircut. Yep, it's a whole new facility okay, for Airbus customers. <laughs> only, only the best. So if you order a plane, there, there was a whole list of brand new facilities. They can facilitate uh, as much fruit as you want. And it, it's funny when I, I actually put, the, I put this on Instagram and People were replying like, this is insane. This is a, an incentive to buy from Airbus. It said um, a fruit basket, you know, as, as much as you want. And then it said, uh, also, as, as I mentioned, it said a, a massage and and uh, manicure, pedicure, waxing, it said. It <laughs> said uh, uh, hairstylist, barber. Uh, the, the list went on. I mean, the reality is if you're ordering a plane, this new lounge facility terminal, Terminal D, as it's known, is where you'll be when you kind of do the transfer of title. So that's where it goes from being an Airbus jet to your airline's aircraft registered in your country or, or elsewhere for, you know, tax reasons. And the, uh, or Brexit reasons, EasyJet fly around Austrian aircraft everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so it's a thing. But yeah, I mean, how cool is that? But I mean, I wouldn't expect anything less. If I'm, if I'm ordering an aircraft, I want Airbus to throw in, you know, a hairstylist and a, and a masseuse. <laughs> I guess it's I guess it's just a bit random because yeah, if you're a private customer, then it makes sense. But for an airline CEO or for an airline to be like, hmm, okay, let's choose Boeing, let's choose Airbus, so I can get a free haircut while we're there picking up the plane. Like that's that's so random. But I mean, sure. If I you're just think it's a- very very <laughs> nicely un-American in terms of. You know how one of the biggest differences between an Airbus jet and a Boeing jet is an Airbus jet in the cockpit has a, a dining table, right? It doesn't have the yoke in front of them. They yeah. they have a table so they can actually eat, you know, with a tablecloth, perhaps a little candle, you know. <laughs> uh, I doubt most. Main course. You're thinking of one airline that has little candles in the cockpit. Mm, two, anyway. <laughs> and when you're uh, when you're dining, if you are a Boeing pilot, you have to eat out of your lap. 
So it's that it's that kind of that's the Europe v US thing that the New York Times reporter should have been asking about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Americans do just eat generally with a fork. Like they don't hold the fork and knife. You know that thing? You just yeah. hold the fork in your right hand usually. So I guess that's the idea. Although it's it makes no sense not to have tables. That that's so I random. I feel like Americans. I feel like Americans listening to you just make that sweeping statement are going to be like, speak for yourself, Dan, you and your one fork. <laughs> I do not eat with one fork. Meanwhile, yeah. do you know, have you heard of Hai Ti Lao, the hot pot chain from China? No, but I feel like I can see the logo in my head, so <laughs> maybe. So, yeah, Hai Ti Lao has, I mean, at first it swept China, then it swept the world. It's now opening up all over, you know, the West. And basically, their concept in the beginning was it, it's relatively expensive hot pot, but it was so popular, it still is in many cities, that you can sometimes have to wait for hours to get a table. So what they did was that to incentivize people to come and to really make it an experience, they offered free manicures, free pedicures, free drinks, oh free God. snacks. As you're sitting there waiting, it's the coolest concept. Many of the locations have now removed that since it started, I guess, like two decades ago. But some still have it. And I, I think that's such like a a cool idea. And it makes more sense at a restaurant where you're spending like $30 per person. And, oh, I can get a free manicure. Let's do it. Rather than a plane. Mm. <laughs> then I don't know if that I think pushes right. it over the, <laughs> the limit. Look, I don't think that this is what gets airline customers over the line in their assessments as to choosing a or b but you know it's a it's a nice amenity for the customer airlines that will go and pick up the aircraft yeah. also while we were there and last thing on airbus i had put to guillaume ceo the ceo of airbus the question of what on earth is happening with the airbus a220 in terms of the fact that we know that it's been struggling to perform in the hot dusty climates like the middle east uh, North Africa and Egypt Air are binning their whole fleet, sending them back to the leasing company. This is not something that we see. Uh, I mean, it's not some. It's unprecedented in aviation. An entire fleet of new aircraft being returned to the leasing company. Uh, we know that I had spoken with that Egyptian delegation here, and they had told me that it was due to engine issues. So let's play this clip. I put that to. Guillaume, let's hear what he had to say. Guillaume, the A220 is not performing as expected in certain markets, but specifically due to the ongoing Pratt & Whitney engine issues. Egypt Air returned its entire fleet of A220s, as you know. So my question is, what is the concern? How concerned are you that this risks putting off potential new customers? And is there a plan to overcome this challenge? Mm. Thank you. So indeed, we are not satisfied with the time on wing of the GTF on the 220. That's really a concern um, that um, is impacting the ability of the 220 to perform well, in particular in certain regions of the world. Now, we have so much demand for the 220 and we are in the phase of ramp up that we're focusing on the customers that are satisfied. Uh, we do not take the Egypt Air single case as a as a rule, and just to be to be clear, there might be other reasons why the relationship uh, is in 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 that place, um, and that's not slowing down the orders. You saw we had a very strong order book for the order intake in 2023 for the 220, and it's not 
slowing down the, the, the product serving needs. And it's a product, it's an aircraft that satisfies a lot the airlines that are using that the, uh, product, and especially the customers, the passengers, which are flying on the 220, really like the product. So that's an area where we need to continue to work uh, with uh, Pratt & Whitney. That's what we're doing. There's a plan for that engine uh, to be back to where it has to be. Unfortunately, uh, as always on engines, complex technology, it takes time. But again, in the meantime, we have enough on our plate with the markets where the 220 really fits with the expectations to fully concentrate on that and ramp up the program. That will come later. This clip cracks me up a bit, I have to say, because he basically took the chance to publicly roast Egypt Air, which I find highly amusing. It was a little bit surprising, wasn't it? Because he starts off by admitting that he's disappointed in the way that engines are operating on aircraft like the Edge 20 in some markets. He, know that, he knows that there are issues and he knows that these issues are yet to be resolved. But then he does move on to kind of throw some shade at the airline in question at Egypt Air. As we just heard him, he was you know, saying that there, there might not just be this in terms of the reason for the relationship kind of falling apart a little bit there. And uh, it, it was interesting. I could I could feel, you know, his facial expressions when he's looking at me during this uh, during this session. He was, you know, you know, when you can just being face to face, as we know from recording last week, being face to face, you have a, you are open to a whole load more communication, right, in terms of body language. And yeah, there was there was just a, a hint of look, you know, it might be a little more of perhaps. <laughs> The, the airline's deployment of the aircraft, perhaps the way in which they utilize the aircraft, perhaps they didn't actually need that aircraft um, to, in line with actually what their needs are as an airline and so on and so on. The only thing that's worth m mentioning is that their relationship with Airbus continues, of course, and they're going to be using part of the money that they uh, had, uh, or all of the money that they had spent on the 220s on boosting up the a350 uh focus for the for the carrier yeah it I, I can really understand how guillaume feels because as you know i think in any business but especially a business like this where all your customers are also big businesses it must be mortifying to have a very sort of public complaint about your product and a huge company comes out and says we don't want this aircraft. It's not performing well where we are. You know, this happens all the time. The biggest case of this was Qatar Airways with the 350, you know, a few years mm -hmm. back. And I can imagine that it's it's very annoying because then you have dozens of other customers all around the world suddenly looking and being like, okay, so another customer is having problems with this product. During that time when there, you know, there was the question of the E350 uh, coding peeling off on uh, with Qatar Airways, I feel like every other A350 operator was questioned. And what are you doing about this? Are you grounding your fleet? And of course, for Airbus, that's like, okay, can everyone stop questioning our product in front of our other customers just because one customer is very publicly unhappy with it? You're so right. You're right. And they there is always this risk of contagion isn't there yeah. where one customer kind of stands up and admits they either have the problem or like what we see sometimes Emirates president Tim Clark do quite a bit 
which is kind of use that opportunity, you know, never waste a good crisis, use that opportunity <laughs> to say, yes, they need to get their shit together and blah, 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 blah. And we see Michael O'Leary do this as well from Ryanair. And they kind of use it as a as a bargaining chip because they themselves are always in active negotiations with the two big manufacturers and their suppliers. Yeah, I, I can imagine in that A350 situation that Airbus was really concerned that other airlines are also going to start saying, hey, we want compensation. We want you to repaint our aircraft, all this stuff just because they can. And of course, then Airbus is in a situation that isn't ideal. And just yesterday, we got news that another A220 operator is pretty much set on returning their fleet of A220s as well. And that is Korean Air. So completely different climate, different reason. It doesn't be as it doesn't seem to be as much performance related as just consolidating their fleet related. But it still is interesting that some airlines are obsessed with the A220. They they cannot get enough of them. They want to get them quicker. They love the aircraft. And at the same time, for other aircraft or other airlines, it just doesn't work out for various reasons, whether it's too little capacity or whatever it may be. You're right. And of course, Korean are considering, I mean, the only reason they are considering of letting go of their entire fleet of A220 jets, which of course are incredibly comfortable aircraft. Both you and I love this aircraft. Yeah. Korean only have 10 of them and they are actively preparing for an eventuality where they merge with Asiana. And in terms of merging, they would need to tidy things up and streamline their aircraft types. Now, Asiana doesn't have anything like the A220, let alone the A220. And so this is why Korean are tipped to be considering that the way forward is potentially to let go of that A220 fleet, which of course, unfortunate timing because of the way in which we know that Egypt Air just returned the fleet. But different reasoning uh, as well. And, and speaking of streamlining the fleet, this is something that is so important in terms of commonality and having efficiency across the fleet. If you can have pilots, for example, jump from one aircraft to the other, uh, operationally as an airline, that's a dream. And that's what both Airbus and Boeing sometimes work towards. So you can have an A350 flight crew flying you one day and that same flight crew jump into the a330 the next day because the commonality between those two aircraft is so high which is a nice link into a little piece of news from etihad who have become one of the first airlines in the world to enable after regulatory approvals and a thorough pilot training period enable their flight crew to achieve the qualification where they can operate both the airbus a350 and the A380 aircraft interchangeably. This is something that for Etihad will be an efficiency dream. Yeah, especially with currently just a fleet of four A380s, that that makes a lot of sense for them. I can imagine how happy the pilots are because they were just going back and forth to London every single flight, because so far that's their only A380 destination. Another one, New York, will be added in April, but... I imagine it's good news for the pilots, good news for the airline. But to me, this is yeah. very fascinating because then we have the only other airline I think that does this is ANA. They only have a fleet of three A380s, so a tiny fleet flying from Tokyo Narita to Honolulu. So they actually have kind of crazy pilots who fly the A380, but then 
they also fly the A320. So could not be more different in terms of size and capacity. And I'm a little bit like, isn't that a, although the cockpit is relatively similar on all aircraft planes, isn't that just a little different in terms of your distance from the ground on the A380 and all this stuff that, you know, of course, pilots are well educated and you know, know what they're doing, but it's a very different experience to fly an E380 to any other plane, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, when, you, when you're in the flight deck, though, their, their, their commonality is extremely high. And that was always the goal when Airbus were manufacturing and creating the A380. So, of course, it's just more, I think if we were to ask pilots that were, that were able to fly both, they would say that perhaps the larger chunk of the awareness is that part, is the, the awareness and the mindset, okay, we have just entered the flight deck of an A380. So that means we have four engines instead of two. It means that we are two decks. It means that we, you know, the weight and balance is distributed differently and so and so on and so on. So I think it's just more of that rather than in terms of the actual flying and the commonality in the cockpit, it's uh, it's very, very high. That was always the goal. Yeah, it it's, it's an interesting move from Etihad. Etihad is doing a lot of interesting things these days to to grow but grow sustainably to to improve their onboard products they've had tons of initiatives you know introducing armani amenities um offering even amenity kits in economy on many routes um so it is interesting to see what they're doing and this is just another part of them being able to expand or you know invest a bit more in having the e380 around and making it make sense yeah. for them as an airline as well because it's expensive to keep around a380 pilots when you don't have that many routes and honestly i don't you think this would make sense for most a380 operators besides maybe emirates these days because lufthansa has you know only two a380 routes at the moment could make sense for them to do the same even catch our airways with you know eight a380s at most um to do something like this yeah no, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, you know, efficiency is always what airlines are striving for, not least operationally and, and how it impacts that bottom line. Did you see this weird little scenario that, that was starting to kind of cook on Twitter about how United Airlines started to pull some of their brand new A321neos out of service? And everyone was like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> I saw a bit of a panic, but... It was over very quickly. So luckily, it wasn't too big a deal, right? No. So you know how when you're looking up and you're checking if the seatbelt sign is on or not, and next to the seatbelt sign, typically on most carriers, you have the no smoking sign, which is always illuminated because, I mean, you cannot smoke on a commercial aircraft and you haven't been able to for decades. And it's not anything that will come as uh, as unusual. I mean, I guess the, the only slight updates to this in recent years is how some airlines are having to specifically mention, yes, that includes vaping. You're not allowed to vape <laughs> yeah. and things like that, right? So United take deliveries of these new A321neos and that, you know, enter service pretty fast. And then they realize that they're breaking the law because Federal Aviation Administration requirements as per a 1990 law is that the no smoking sign by federal regulation is required to be manual, meaning you must be able to turn it off. Despite the fact that, just to be clear, it will never be turned off 
okay? They just stay on because this is the law. There are no phases of the flight where you can then light one up, right? United applied for an exemption of this a few years ago, and the aircraft that it listed for the exemption, the A321neo, wasn't on that exemption list. So very quickly, they had discovered that they were not complying with federal regulations, therefore violating them, therefore the aircraft had to be pulled out of service because the no-smoking signs were just on. (laughs) They were automatically and continuously illuminated, which is, you know, sensible. And, of course, with smoking on aircraft having been banned, for example, in the US since basically the 80s, I mean, some common sense here, guys. But no, this this is the law in the US at least, and and that no smoking sign has to have uh, been able to have been operated manually by the flight crew. That wasn't the case on the 321neo. They grounded the aircraft. They had to take it out of service, and they've had to make these modifications now to ensure that, yes, regulators, we can turn off the no smoking sign, but God forbid, because we would never do that because we also comply with the other law, which is that smoking has been banned on a commercial aircraft for decades. That is, oh, that's so ridiculous. Anytime I see a new aircraft and they have those no smoking stickers instead of the signs, I'm like, yes, thank you. Logic. This is how it should be everywhere, but not in good old America. (laughs) There you have to have a sign. Some people often, uh, they often ask about why do brand new aircraft still have ashtrays at the, for example, on the lavatory door. Do, Do you know the answer? Yes, in case someone smokes, they need to be able to put it out there and not throw it in the trash where the paper can start a fire and and all that. It was so fascinating when I flew the Saudi SM47 video now up on my channel. That was the first aircraft I've been on in, I don't know, at least 10 years where the armrests still have ashtrays. And it immediately brought me back to my childhood being like, wait a minute. This is how all planes used to be. I remember sitting as a kid yeah. on SAS MD-80s and fiddling with the ashtray oh in the armrest. Oh my <laughs> God, you were that kid. <laughs> you know, the kid that was, fit, it would make like a clicking sound, like, like, <laughs> like that, but, yeah. but a more tinny version. And I would always be glaring around at that kid. Don't get me wrong. I was also a kid at that time, but <laughs> you were that kid. I was that kid. I mean, not the whole flight, but it's, of course, when you're young, it's like fun to have something you can press and it opens and it still hadn't been used in many years. So it was clean. One thing about the the laboratory smoke detectors, which I don't think a lot of people realize how those work. And it's quite fascinating because I used to think that the smoke detectors are detecting smoke, i.e. they sense that there is some, I, I don't know, some burning thing in the laboratory. But no, it's actually just little sort of lasers or sensors that are looking for changes in visibility. So they go down from the ceiling and if they detect anything, so it's not only smoke, of course this applies to vapes and cigarettes, but even if you have like a, some people have those spray deodorants and they're very, Mm. uh, you know, the spray can be very thick. That can also trigger the laboratory smoke detector if you're spraying very liberally because it's just looking for changes in visibility and that's what you know, hopefully you wouldn't get in trouble in that case. <laughs> it smells no, like no, uh, no, <laughs> deodorant. Here, being reminded, being reminded of this by you, I'm like, okay, so maybe I'll 
go easy on the hairspray yes <laughs> arrival on my next trip <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh, yeah hairspray is another thing there's you know yeah, yeah there's several things even actually some airlines like lufthansa in their first class lavatories they have the evian like water spray that you can just spray on your face or wherever love that yeah i think that also has the potential to trigger it if you're spraying a ton or close to the smoke detector where where it could see some sort of change but yeah that is interesting and i always wonder like you know sometimes you're with a smoker and they smoke like a cigarette every 30 minutes flying especially like a 16 18 hour flight as a smoker must be really difficult to to be in withdrawal that whole time you know i've never experienced that obviously but it's uh yeah it's something that would be interesting to hear from from people how they cope maybe they're just imagining themselves you know okay in 16 hours we are you know on rodeo drive it's all going to be worth it (laughs) with nicotine (laughs) yeah and they probably bring nicotine gum or something like that that can hold them over that's the same with at least (laughs) that's what people experience on uh on uh, Royal Brunei when they can't get alcohol, right? Yeah, well, we're waiting to hear about your experiences there. Okay, before we move to Q&A, I want to talk about what on earth happened in Belgrade with the Air Serbia flight that was operated by Marathon. It was an Embraer 195. It should have been a routine flight from Belgrade to Dusseldorf. 106 on board departed in the early evening but it overran the end of the runway before becoming airborne and in that kind of overrunning incident collided with the approach lights of the runway became airborne climbed to about 6,000 feet but it stopped the climb on its way to 6,000 feet so actually no it climbed to about 4,000 feet I'm just looking at the trajectory here climbed to about 4,000 feet And then, of course, had to initiate some kind of return because they know that, I mean, there were reports immediately from the cabin. Passengers were saying that immediately after takeoff, something was broken. The aircraft had shaken. There was a sound of something having ruptured. When I looked at the footage, but when I looked at the video, the uh, images, I was horrified. This could have been so extremely dangerous. Yeah, this is... It's absolutely insane that this happened. And what scared me is that I've always thought of Air Serbia as like one of the or the best airline in sort of Eastern Europe in terms of reliability, good aircraft, quite good in-flight service. And then this happening just doesn't feel like that image I had of Air Serbia at all because it's purely a miscalculation on the pilot's part. They had chosen to enter it further down the runway. So they weren't at the very yeah. beginning of the runway. They were quite a lot further down with a full flight. And they ended up overrunning by so, so much, which is... There is all kind of damage on this aircraft. The fuselage has been ruptured near to the fuel tanks, near to the landing gear. I mean, the aircraft is in a state. It's lucky and... I want to be really clear because you just said Air Serbia have a great reputation. This was not actually an Air Serbia operated flight, was it? This was a Greek carrier, Marathon Airlines, who were operating on behalf. And what I can confirm already is that Air Serbia have now axed that agreement, that lease agreement with Marathon following this incident. Because I think Air Serbia, you know, for them, this is incredibly 
uh, distressing that their, their flight and their passengers were involved in something that, as you say, seems to be at this point a miscalculation, a poor decision planning, and uh, not something that Air Serbia will have expected from a, a, a wet lease agreement customer airline when they want to maintain the same level of safety and standards and quality across uh, one flight to the other. This was, I mean, I, I had seen a lot of industry reaction to this and people were just kind of shocked that something like this could happen. This is like one, one pilot described it on Twitter as just an absolute rookie mistake in terms of where they had chosen to uh, initiate their initial part of the uh, takeoff phase in terms of the positioning on the runway. And then, of course, becoming airborne only after hitting the uh, approach lights. It's, uh, yeah, pretty dramatic Not stuff. Good. And I was kind of shocked, I must say, that they just told the passengers there was a small m- maintenance issue or something. They, Of course, the people on board didn't realize that there's a full-on r- rip in the fuselage that looks massive from the outside. But... The pe- many people on board, I-, I would be curious to hear what they thought was going on when they hear these loud bangs. They're obviously not on the runway anymore. It's getting really bumpy. Must have been terrifying. But then they don't really get to understand the extent of what's happened. Who knows if they ever found out or if they found out via the news later on. Yeah, it says that passengers were told, oh, it's just a minor incident. But they were telling cabin crew they could see something was broken off of the left wing. I mean, it's, you know, who were they trying to kid here? Yeah, exactly. It's always like, especially, you know, sometimes it is a minor incident. Like there was also United 757 that had to divert, I think, last night or yesterday um, on its way from between the east and the west coast of the U.S. It diverted to Denver because a part of the slats, the front part of the flaps had sort of been torn off. So, of course, in that instance, it looks terrifying from the inside it's not that dangerous for the airworthiness of the aircraft, you know, in terms of how big the damage was. But I imagine when you see something like that happening, you're just like, woo. And especially considering that most people are, or a good amount of people are already a bit nervous about flying. That's not a good, yeah. <laughs> a good thing to see. No, you're absolutely right. But with that, we've got a bunch to get through. So let's dive into our Q&A. Okay, the first up is from Rita. Says, hi, Alex, love the podcast. I've heard all of the episodes. Brilliant, that's what we love to hear. She says, I was wondering, are you and Dan the kind of people that queue 10 minutes before boarding (laughs) begins? Or do you wait for your group to get caught and then go to the queue? Thanks, keep up the good work. Ooh, okay. I I know the answer for you. And the answer for me is, it depends. Can you guess why? It depends if you have hand luggage or not. No, it depends if I'm making a video or not. <laughs> if oh, I'm, if I'm, I'm reviewing, sorry, I forgot you're yeah. a YouTuber. <laughs> exactly. I just left my mind. <laughs> if I'm reviewing the flight, a hundred percent, I want to be the first on board. So I'm the first person to queue, stressing everyone out, ruining the experience. And trust me, I don't like being that person, but it's for my job. If I'm not. I will board as late as I can, considering how much luggage I have, considering my cabin. If I'm in business and I'm not reviewing, I will board last. I'm totally happy to do that. What did you think my answer was, seeing that you said you you knew so well? Well, I would say you board last whenever you can. Yeah. But I know that when you flew to Toulouse, you actually boarded first. 
that was because everyone else was kind of apparent. They were all transiting from the same place, so they just joined much later. So I did still board at the last minute, but they were even later than I was, and they all arrived together. Yeah, I mean the cabin was pretty light load. So yeah, quick answer. I tried to board last, last, completely last. Exception to that, short haul flight in Europe where I need to get space for the cabin bag, then unfortunately I do have to get on nearer to the front, which I don't like because I don't like then to sit down and then have to watch 180 other passengers make their way down to the aisle and, you know, look at row two and say, is this row 35? No, (laughs) it's the second row you've just boarded. Okay. So I like to just go last. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I have a question here from Isaac, which I love. So Isaac asks, what are our opinions on cabin crew cleaning the aircrafts on turnarounds? This has you know, been a thing on low-cost airlines for a while, but now more and more full-service airlines require cabin crew to do quite a bit of cleaning. So what do we think about that? I know that it makes sense and they have no choice on short-haul flights, but I don't like it when the flight is like, you know, a good few hours and then the cleaners are not coming on board during the turnaround. No, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is, you're asking me, you know how hygiene OCD I am. And you're like, oh, Alex, what do you think about that? About the fact that the planes are not being cl- not being cleaned properly. Any thoughts, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> you're, I mean, you, it shouldn't matter to you because you Clorox the whole seat anyway after boarding. Clorox is my Roman Empire. There we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Clorox. Would love that. Love that for, for Clorox. Um, look, as I say, I think there should be a basic expectation that when you arrive to your seat area, it should be clean. And when it's not, it's instant disappointment, regardless if your flight is 10 minutes or 10 hours. Yeah. I. So my feeling about this is that I would prefer for the cabin crew's sake and for the passenger's sake that the cabin crew don't have to be the ones doing the cleaning because it, yeah. you know... It's an additional burden on them. I don't think they do it as thoroughly as real ground cleaners would do it because it's not really part of their job. And it just kind of sucks all around. All around. The exception, I would say, is lavatories on a long-haul flight. Someone has to keep them fresh. And unfortunately, it's not going to be the passengers. So I'm so, so grateful when cabin crew do keep those clean. But for example, yeah. even on a recent Emirates flight last week, A380 economy class, the crew had so much to do before landing. They were collecting headphones, collecting used blankets into one bag, collecting clean blankets into another bag, collecting pillows, like all this stuff. They had to collect and sort into different things, which I am sure at some point cleaners were doing instead. And I could tell the crew was so stressed out because it was a three-hour flight on an E380. So they had to do meal service, second round of drinks, collect everything, and then collect all this, these items in different steps. And even though that wasn't during a turnaround, I just felt really bad for them, especially at a premium airline like Emirates. But yeah, mm. I I wish airlines would, you know, use proper cleaners. At the same time, on a 45-minute turnaround, 30 minutes sometimes on an A320, you know, in Europe or in the US, that makes no sense. So, so unfortunately, you know, it's the crew or no cleaning at all. And In that case, I think we all prefer a little bit of cleaning by the crew. The next question I have is from Nahal. She says, hi, Alex, big fan of you and uh, of you and Dan and the podcast. Several episodes ago, you guys mentioned that Delta give away holographic airplane trading cards 
Apparently, Dan and I were in Dubai at the same time. She said that she said I brought the rain from Portland and Seattle. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> and I flew a leg of my route on Delta. I approached the three pilots chatting after the flight to ask them for a card. I was unsure if it was just a Christmas thing, but sure enough, the first officer pulled some crisp cards out of his bag. One of the other pilots was jealous and even asked him, "Where did you get those?" <laughs> I wanted to let you. And the listeners know that it is a real thing, and pilots still have them. Fantastic! That's brilliant. I mean, what a, what great insight! And I trust that you had taken some of those cards, the trading cards, and it uh, puts you in a stronger position for your next trade with your next Delta flight crew. So that's uh, <laughs> that's cool. Before we go to another question, there is another comment rather than question here from Roll. I think his name is pronounced Roll like Joel, but with an R. He says, "You guys need to get on and do more video recordings, Alex. You guys are great, and I love hearing about the wild stories from each of your travels. Please work to make towards making this happen. It's not just the aviation content that I love to receive from your podcast, but it's the delivery with a touch of a home run. That's what's making me come back for more. Really nice message. This is how he ends it." See, I loved, I loved the first part of the message. Then I read this: "It's more like listening to my uncles sitting at the table and giving us kids life and travel stories." <laughs> uh, uncles, <laughs> uncles, <laughs> with my greatest respect to your uncles, Roll, who sound great. That's not the vibe I thought we were going for. But apparently, Dan, you and I just like sat around the table sharing our life and travel stories. We're twenty six. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's because literally everything we say and do is not like normal twenty six year olds. We're just like, do we drink on planes? True. Of course not. Do we? No. Do, do we Clorox our seats? Of course we do. Yeah, of course, <laughs> most, yes. Most twenty six year olds are like getting on board with a backpack, drinking. Yeah, it's. I understand the uncle True. comment because we we kind of are uncles. Yeah. No, I liked it. This was it. This was a. Uh, this was in jest. Thank you, Roll, for the for the message. Genuinely, genuinely, uh, it was a, it was an interesting one. I have a very long question from Stephen, so I just want to address it. First of all, he says um, he really enjoys the podcast as an av geek and cabin crew for Virgin Atlantic. He loves listening, especially en route to Heathrow for work. How awesome is that? So he he That's wants us to awesome. do a whole deep dive into Virgin Atlantic, which we certainly can do someday, but. If we don't have time for that, which we don't right now, he just he just asks, what are our opinions on Virgin Atlantic on the global stage? And what do we think or they could do to be around for another 40 years? That's a great question. I mean, from my side, I think Virgin Atlantic have been able to protect their niche in terms of that brand. That brand, I think, is what sets Virgin aside from other carriers. It is still a sexy red hot brand in terms of having a little bit of cheekiness to it having a little bit of spice a bit of flair and i like that i think virgin have been able to continue that which i i don't think is a, a very easy thing to have been able to do and i also think that there when i think of virgin atlantic i think that's how i would want to cross the atlantic so i'm, I'm thinking specifically if i'm going from for example if i'm going from london to new york of course one of the world's most flagship routes and a flagship route for virgin atlantic I would choose Virgin Atlantic over British Airways, uh, their largest and most significant competitor on the route. 
And that is because I think there's just more flair that I'll be getting more for my experience in any class, whether that's in economy premium or, of course, um, business class, Virgin Atlantic, refer to it as upper class. It's uh, it's something that I think Virgin do really well. In terms of their expansion as an airline outside of the Atlantic area, I think it's been a little bit shaky. They haven't always got it right. That's reflected in routes that have been launched and then axed and then launched and then axed and so on and so on. You know, when they when they look east, they're a little bit shakier ground. Um, when they when they go south, a little bit shaky ground. But uh, I think what Virgin does really really well is the Atlantic, and uh, and that's where I think the focus has to be on making sure they stay at the top there and bolster and strengthen and and hopefully go from strength to strength with that. Yeah. What about you? I mean, it's in their name for God's sake, Virgin Atlantic. So of course that's where they it should is. do well. I think that. You know, now that they're, well, not no, it's not a recent development, but since being in bed, let's say, with Delta and becoming part of Sky Team, I think they're really well positioned. Delta is one of the most profitable airlines in the world, extremely well run. So they, you know, they have good input there. Delta, I think, is really good at strategically making sure airlines do what they do best. And, you know, it's not about launching routes for pride or for you know any other reason than making as much money as possible and although as you said virgin atlantic is a bit confused sometimes when it decides to launch sao paulo and then says "Mm, never mind and then says okay we're doing it again and then never mind they are generally on a good trajectory the one thing i will say that i find a little disappointing if i have to think of one thing it's that what's up with their 787s and older a330 300s not having any plans to be reconfigured. They have awesome seats on their A350s yeah. and A330 Neos, but come on, like those seats, especially on the 787s, are just not competitive anymore. And it's surprising to me for such a leading airline to not even have any plans to reconfigure them. You're so right. You're right. And and that's not just Virgin. There's so many carriers. But yeah, I think that, you know, Virgin don't have a sizable fleet whereby... They can kind of blame the fact that, well, 120 other aircraft have it and these don't. Virgin is still relatively a small carrier on the global scale in terms of fleet size. And so, yeah, it will be nice to have them streamline their cabin product. That's that's for sure. Okay, we have more questions, including some from the previous week that we didn't get to, but it's all in the folder. I'm looking at them now and we're going to get to them in next week's episode, along with any more that you'd like to submit and keep our global on-air conversation with amongst us, the uh, on-air community, going. So as ever, we're thankful for you to, to get in, for getting in touch, and we invite you to going forward. Yes, and by the way, just a reminder, we prefer to get questions via Instagram at the nonstop Dan for me or at AlexLHR for Alex. That's the best way to reach us. We've been getting them in YouTube comments, which is also good. But I've been getting quite a few on emails, which we appreciate, but it's really helpful if we just streamline it in Instagram DMs so we can keep them nice oh and God, Honestly, not <laughs> not you hijacking the word streamline. He wants to streamline like Eddie had. He wants to streamline like a virgin score of product. And then he gets to the end segment of the podcast. like, it would be really nice to streamline it. Then. <laughs> See, that's the difference between you and others, right? Some uh, some guys are streamlining their fleet of A380s and A350s for pilot commonality because they're the CEO of Etihad. Some are doing it for cabin product at Alan's Up Virgin Atlantic. 
Dan streamlining DMs. So <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the what it. That's that's what he wants to do. The life of an influencer. No, no, no. no. It's good. A full respect to you, and I hope that we can hear more about what you were up to with your flying, because you did, from what I gather, one of the world's shortest A380 routes. Yeah, that's and right. When's that video coming out? Yeah, that video will be up in a few weeks. I'm also probably doing quite a bit of flying next week, so. We will see what happens. I'm, I'm booking everything so last minute these days, which is my new preference because otherwise building up to a trip, I'm always like, hmm, should I do it? And then I get tempted to cancel because yeah. it's like, that's the exciting thing to do. So if I just book very last minute, then I won't cancel anything. Well, that sounds thrilling. And please do keep us updated. Well, yeah, I'd say keep us updated. You're not going to keep me updated. You're just going to message me. Hi, I'm back in LA before you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to record together from LA sometime or Gothenburg. Guys, I was saying, yeah. I was telling Alex in person, wouldn't it be epic to do a collab where Alex comes to Gothenburg? If you would like to see that, let us know. Yeah, or don't, you know, it's okay also. You, we respect you guys are busy people, lots to do in the day. You're going to have to DM him <laughs> with such a recommendation. There's so many other things to be doing. Like, you know, I don't know. Staring at the sky. <laughs> Literally anything else. <laughs> we will uh, we'll wrap up on this episode. Thank you for joining us as always. And we look forward to sitting down with you guys next week on air. Bye bye. See you later. Bye.